Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the Supreme Court taking up the Mississippi abortion law struck down by a lower court, meaning that four justices on the court chose to revisit Roe v. Wade, and in doing so, in a 6-3 conservative court, could mean that soon states will pass their own restrictive laws, as Arkansas has just done, where even victims of rape and incest are denied access to an abortion. Joining us is Melissa Murray, a professor of law and faculty director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at New York University, who is a leading expert on family law and reproductive rights and justice. We'll discuss how the decision in this case will coincide with the midterm election campaigns, and just as anti-abortion activists have been relentless in their attacks on abortion rights, those defending a woman's right to choose, to write, a woman's right to have an abortion might well be motivated to become politically active if either the Supreme Court rules to uphold the Mississippi ban or takes a less confrontational path to make access to abortion so restrictive that Roe won't be overturned explicitly but will be weakened to the extent it will be neutralised. Then, with the Biden administration approving a $753 million arms sale of JDAM missiles used by the Israeli Defense Forces to destroy a building in Gaza housing the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, we'll speak with military and intelligence analyst Mark Perry, a senior analyst at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who has traveled to Israel and the Palestinian territories dozens of times. He joins us to discuss how Israel's heavy-handed actions are uniting Palestinians in both Palestine and Israel and that unconditional support for Israel in Congress is starting to erode. Then finally we'll examine the roles of millennials in politics and speak with Charlotte Alter, who has written a book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a Generation of Leaders Will Transform America, which profiles millennial politicians like Pete Buttigieg and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as well as Elise Stefanik, who has just replaced Liz Cheney in GOP leadership in the House as a loyal Trumpster. We will discuss Charlotte's article at Time magazine, The Handmaiden of Trump, how Elise Stefanik went from moderate to MAGA. Joining us now is Melissa Murray, who is the Frederick and Grace Stokes Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at New York University, a leading expert on family law, constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. Her research focuses on the legal regulation of intimate life and encompasses such topics as the regulation of sex and sexuality, marriage and its alternatives, the marriage equality debate, the legal recognition of caregiving, and reproductive rights and justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Melissa Murray. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Supreme Court has decided to take up Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban case. And, of course, in doing so, if they rule in favor of it, they'll be overturning lower court's decisions. And the justice had put off any actions on this case for several months. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Uh, and, of course, her replacement, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, is, I think, and I think many other people think, is very likely to rule in favour of the Mississippi case. So how do you see this working out? We'll, we'll get a decision in the fall, but the fact that four justices decided to take up the case is troubling, at least to me. How, how is it to you? Well, 
Well, I definitely think it reflects the changing institutional dynamics at the court since Justice Ginsburg's passing in September of 2020, as you suggested. Um, she was replaced almost immediately by Amy Coney Barrett, who, unlike Justice Ginsburg, is perhaps more skeptical of abortion rights. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was a stalwart supporter of women's reproductive rights on the ground that the ability to control one's reproductive capacity was absolutely essential to women's equal citizenship. Justice Barrett um, has clearly been more skeptical of abortion rights in her academic writing as a law professor. And again, she was appointed by a president who made no secret of his decision to appoint justices to the court because they would be in a position to overrule Roe versus Wade. So this is again, I think part of a concerted strategy to use the courts to roll back reproductive rights. In terms of institutional dynamics, though, I think it is worth noting here that the introduction of Justice Barrett changed the nature of the court from a five to four conservative majority in which Chief Justice Roberts really was the swing vote to a six to three conservative supermajority where the Chief Justice isn't really needed by the conservatives to form a five-person majority, and he doesn't help the liberal wing to form a five-person majority. They're, they're simply outvoted. And so the chief justice has really lost his position as the pivotal vote around whom these very controversial issues um, pivot. And the real way that he has to influence the decision-making um, going forward is in choosing to join the conservatives, the five conservatives, um, and actually then direct the writing of the opinion. He can keep the opinion for himself in, in those cases in which he is in the majority and issue a narrower, a narrower ruling than perhaps what the rest of the conservatives on the court would like. Uh, but the fact that this case has been taken, and again, it only requires four justices to grant um, a vote of certiorari uh, on a case like this one um, suggests, though, that the conservatives on the court are emboldened. They do not need the chief justice to make a majority, and they are moving ahead uh, as though they are equipped with the votes to bring about what is likely, I think, um, a very deleterious impact for reproductive rights. And Chief Justice John Roberts joined uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the other three justices considered to be on the liberal side, striking down this law, saying it was identical to a Texas law that the court struck down in 2016. So I understood that three of the former President Donald Trump's Supreme Court appointees, well, two of the former President Donald Trump's Supreme Court appointees, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, voted in dissent last year to allow Louisiana to enforce these restrictions on doctors. And of course, it's worth noting that there's only one abortion clinic left in the entire state of Mississippi, right? No, that's exactly right. Um, June Medical Services uh, was a case that was decided in the last round by the court in October term 2019. There you saw the Chief Justice peel away from the conservative wing of the court to join what was then a four-justice liberal minority to uh, strike down the challenge Louisiana admitting privileges law, which, as you say, was virtually identical to the admitting privileges law that was struck down just four years earlier in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, again, what has changed on this court um, is nothing more than its composition. Um, it had been a four-person liberal minority, and the chief justice could join them to uphold the law, and he made very clear in doing so he was, had not changed his position on abortion. Um, in Whole Women's Health, he had joined the dissenting wing of the court there. 
Uh, but he said that in terms of the court's institutional legitimacy, it required fidelity to stare decisis, the idea that settled decisions are to be followed by the court and not simply cast off because the composition of the court has changed. So he joined the liberal wing uh, because he said that stare decisis demanded his vote in that regard. Um, now, again, he's part of a six to three conservative supermajority. I don't think his views on abortion have changed. I think he's still very much skeptical of abortion rights, but his interest and his attentiveness to the institutional legitimacy of the court is unlikely to have the same kind of sway that it did here, and certainly unlikely to produce a kind of result that we saw just last term in June Medical Services. And again, I'm speaking with Melissa Murray, who's the Frederick and Grace Stokes Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at New York University, a leading expert in family law, constitutional law and reproductive rights and justice. Her research focuses on the legal regulation of intimate life and encompasses such topics as the regulation of sex and sexuality, marriage and its alternatives, the marriage equality debate, the legal recognition of caregiving and reproductive rights and justice. So let's talk about the central question in the in this case that's now before the Supreme Court. And I guess it's about the viability of a fetus and whether a fetus can survive outside the, the woman at 15 weeks. And frankly, some of the stuff that, that the anti-abortion people have been doing is somewhat ghoulish. I mean, they hold up pictures of aborted fetuses in, at rallies and stuff. And across the states, they've been nibbling away and throwing these constant cases in the mix in the hope that something it's like throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks is that what's going on here that they've finally found something that's gotten through because it's a relentless process that's been going on against roe v wade and it seems asymmetrical in terms of the forces i don't know whether it means that on the the liberal side there isn't the sort of same energy but there certainly seems to be an extraordinary amount of energy and dedication on the side of the anti-abortion people. So I, I think that is exactly right. Um, this is a multi-pronged battle for the anti-choice movement, and they're committed to fighting and to rolling back Roe versus Wade on a number of fronts. Um, and, and they've been doing so roughly since the 1980s. Um, to be clear, they had an opportunity in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey to see Roe overruled entirely. Uh, the Supreme Court balked at that moment. I mean, it, it was a, an incredibly precipitous moment for the court because the composition of the court had changed dramatically with the introduction of a number of Republican appointees. And so many thought that the court would take the opportunity to overrule Roe versus Wade. It did not. Um, Justices Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter kind of banded together with the remaining liberal core of Roe versus Wade to reaffirm the essential holding of Roe versus Wade, although they did allow the states more latitude in regulating the abortion right um, throughout the course of a woman's pregnancy. So it upheld Roe, but often gave states more authority to legislate to restrict abortion rights. Um, now moving forward in that sort of interim period between 1992 when Casey was decided and the moment that we are in now, um, states have basically been seeking to restrict abortion um, in some cases like this Mississippi law at very early stages of pregnancy when women may not even know that they're actually pregnant. Um, and the question of viability has been important because in Casey, the court reaffirmed the idea that even though the states may have broader authority to regulate the abortion right, 
they cannot completely proscribe abortion before the point of viability. And the point of viability, as you say, is the point at which the fetus can survive outside of the womb. And that's typically somewhere around 23 to 25 weeks of pregnancy, certainly not 15 weeks, or in some of these cases, um, in some of these laws, six weeks or, or 12 weeks. And so the effort to pass these laws um, with even earlier time limits on the ability to get an abortion has been part, I think, of a response to the mounting desire to see Roe versus Wade overturned, um, and also a response to the change dynamics on the court. Um, the three Trump appointees, I think, really galvanized the anti-choice movement. They recognized that the court was becoming more and more hospitable to the prospect of rolling back reproductive rights and certainly to reconsidering Roe versus Wade. And so they have passed a lot of different laws, all of which are aimed at pressing these challenges through the lower federal courts, ultimately up to the Supreme Court, where they make this bid on the part to the justices to have their case taken up and to be heard. And today, the court did just as I think they, the anti-choice movement has been seeking. Um, they granted certiorari in this particular case. And they would be overturning the, the fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decision because that decision said that the state of Mississippi conceded that it had identified no medical evidence that a fetus would be viable at 15 weeks. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a very, it would be a very clear dismissal of past precedent, um, like would very much be a reversal of the Fifth Circuit's clear determination that there was no proof that a fetus is viable outside of the womb at 15 weeks. Um, and, and more importantly, it would be an opinion if they were to uphold this law that would fly in the face of these settled precedents, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And, and that is the point. Um, these challenges are meant to put the question of Roe's continued viability, um, Casey's continued viability squarely before the court. But in this Mississippi law, apparently, and if the Supreme Court upholds it or overturns the lower court decision, it would mean that doctors who are found in violation of this ban against abortions after 15 weeks, they would face mandatory suspension or revocation of their medical license. Yes, I think that's right. Um, that's certainly the letter of the law. I think the way that the law is written um, is not only aimed at prompting these legal challenges, but also prompting those who provide abortion services in these states into a state of disarray um, and, and confusion about whether or not um, what they're doing is lawful or legal um, to, again, bring call into question medical evidence about when viability actually begins and the overwhelming goal beyond simply getting these cases to the Supreme Court is to limit access to these providers by limiting the number of providers who are willing to do this um, and also limiting access to abortion across the board in these states. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, Mississippi is down to only one clinic that provides these services. So how is this going to translate? I was talking earlier, Melissa, about this sort of asymmetry of political passions and energy that seems to be between those conservatives and the anti-abortion people who have been quite zealous for some time and those that have been defending women's reproductive rights. Could that political energy suddenly shift like in a kind of like a pendulum? And if the Supreme Court rules as 
many suspect, and I certainly suspect they might well rule in favour of the, this Mississippi law, uh, which then would give the states much more flexibility in passing these laws that have been on the books. You know, many, many laws are on the books in many, many states. So how do you see this playing out in terms of activism? So, so let me let me step back for a minute and just sort of say at the court, I think this could play out in one of two ways. One is obviously the court deciding to overrule these abortion precedents like Roe versus Wade, like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, like utterly jettisoning them and, and getting them out of the way um, in terms of precedents. The other option, which is obviously less drastic, is to simply say that the question of viability is no longer determinative in the court's abortion jurisprudence, um, which would then lead, I think, to a spate of legal challenges at the lower federal courts about whether or not these bans are permissible, um, whether it's 15 weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks, whether they pose an undue burden to the right to the, an abortion, which is the current standard um, for determining whether abortion restrictions are constitutional. So those are two different paths that the court could take. Um, one is obviously more explicitly um, overruling Roe and Casey, and the other, I think, just simply so constrains access to abortion that it, it's almost as though it were overruling Roe and Casey in principle, even if it did not do so in fact. What that means on the ground in terms of political activism really, I think, is a question of timing. Um, one of the things that's really unusual about the court's decision to grant certiorari in this case is that they will be hearing this case on the eve of what will likely be an incredibly consequential midterm election, um, certainly for the House of Representatives and for the Senate itself. And if there are, I think, scores of women across the country who believe that this particular Supreme Court is launching an assault on women's equality and re women's reproductive rights, I think that could translate um, in some meaningful gains at the ballot box um, for Democratic candidates who are more explicit about their interest in protecting reproductive rights. It may be too little too late at that point, um, but insofar as the Senate is really critical for appointing and confirming judges, that could be incredibly meaningful going forward. So this is all to say that the fact that the court decided to take this case um, on the eve of the midterm elections really shows you that there is an emboldened conservative majority that thinks that it has the votes and is willing to sort of, you know, push the envelope on these questions, regardless of what the political consequences may be. Well, I think the, these anti-abortion activists and the legislators that support them probably feel that this new court owes it to them. They've done all the heavy lifting and now they've got the six to three majority. So I'm sure they feel like this is almost like a rubber stamp, you know, get on with it. I mean, is, is that the case, do you think? Well, the, the judiciary has always operated independently of the political branches, the president and sure. Congress. So even though the president will appoint justices to the Supreme Court or nominate justices to the court and the Senate will confirm them, uh, they have no, those two branches are not supposed to have any bearing on the work that courts do. So the idea that, you know, these anti-choice legislators would feel that the court owes them, you know, they can feel that all they want, um, but the court, in fact, owes nobody anything. Um, you know, they are meant to be independent. That is the whole point of the Article Three judiciary, the fact that they have life tenure, um, they are not beholden to anyone. So, 
they didn't have to take this case. Um, they, they get appeals in, a, in scores of cases each year, and they accept only a handful of them. The fact that they chose to take up this case at this time means there are at least four people on the court who are itching to have this particular fight and don't care what the consequences will be, if, if there are consequences politically. And I think deciding this on the eve of what will likely be a very fraught midterm election will certainly have some political ramifications. But just in closing, the two options that you laid out, one is is sort of, you know, a blunt instrument mm-hmm. killing off Roe v. Wade. And the other one is a more subtle instrument, yes, but just as effective. I mean, and, and I think that's the question. And I think this is where we will see whether Chief Justice Roberts still holds some influence among the conservative wing. You know, as I said earlier, now that the Chief Justice is no longer a swing justice on the court with the ability to create a majority with only his vote, um, you know, he is not needed by the other five conservative justices to form a majority. Where he is pivotal, however, is if he joins the majority and is in position to assign the drafting of the majority opinion. And if he chooses to join the majority here, he may well assign that opinion to himself for the purpose of sketching a narrower opinion that does not explicitly overrule Roe versus Wade, but rather um, limits the force of it by, as I said, um, saying that viability is no longer important. And, and we have seen him play this role before in other abortion cases. The case that you mentioned, June Medical Services, where he joined the four liberal justices to strike down the Louisiana admitting privileges law. He wrote his own solo opinion in that case in which he argued that the earlier case that was supposed to control whole women's health versus Hellerstedt um, really was not the opinion that should be followed and that the less exacting standard uh, that had prevailed before whole women's health was the one that he was following and that should be followed in the future. And so um, even though he voted with the liberals in that particular case, he did so on terms that really hobbled abortion uh, jurisprudence going forward. And we certainly saw that playing out in the lower federal courts um, in the wake of that decision. Well, Melissa Murray, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Melissa Murray, who's the Frederick and Grace Stokes Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at New York University, a leading expert in family law, constitutional law and reproductive rights and justice. Her research focuses on the legal regulation of intimate life and encompasses such topics as the regulation of sex and sexuality, marriage and its alternatives, the marriage equality debate, the legal recognition of caregiving and reproductive rights and justice. And we're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how Israel's heavy-handed actions are uniting Palestinians in both Palestine and Israel and that unconditional support for Israel in Congress is starting to erode. It has always been around. It will always have a niche. But they'll make it a privilege, not a right, accessible only to the rich. Hey, pro-lifers need to dig themselves because life don't stop after birth. And for a child born to the unprepared, it might even just get worse. The situation would surely change if they were to find themselves in it. Supporters of the H-bomb and firebombing clinics.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mark Perry, an author and historian specializing in military, foreign affairs and intelligence analysis, a senior analyst at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He is the author of 10 books on foreign policy and military history, including Conceived in Liberty, A Fire in Zion, and Talking to Terrorists, Why America Must Engage with Its Enemies. And he's the recipient of both the 1995 National Jewish Book Award and the prestigious Project Censored Award. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Perry. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. And we're learning now, of course, that the Biden administration, has, uh, just as recently as May the 5th, approved a $735 million arms sale to Israel involving the sale of these Joint Direct Attack Munitions, or JDAMs, made by Boeing. And it looks as if it was the JDAMs that hit the building that housed the Associated Press and uh, Al Jazeera, which the Israelis claim is also the headquarters of Hamas's intelligence service. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said on Monday that he hadn't seen any evidence supporting Israel's claim about Hamas operating out of the building, and he has also pressed Israel for justification. Is there any kind of split going on here with the usual sort of pretty much unequivocal support for Israel from U.S. governments, whether they're Democrats or Republicans? Well, so far the response from this administration on Israel's um, bombing of Gaza has been rather tepid. And we've heard the usual cliches coming from the White House and the State Department that Israel, you know, has the right to defend itself, which is kind of the standard operating phrase of this administration. The last administration, the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that. So it goes on and on and on. I'd, I'd like to say that Blinken's uh, statement uh, is a is a significant departure from this, but I don't think we can say that yet. The Biden administration is treading very carefully uh, because Joe Biden is a supporter of Israel, has been for a long time, and because doesn't want to lose its moderates or pick a fight, lose its moderates in the Democratic Party, or lose you know or erode even further its its legislative package with Republicans. So they're being very careful. I think it's embarrassing, frankly, that the, that the administration hasn't taken a harder line. This is the opportunity to do so, and, and it just refuses to do so. And, of course, it's supporting Israel at the UN, vetoing any um, calls from the Security Council, or a number of calls from the Security Council, to impose a ceasefire or demand a ceasefire. So I imagine that's making the UN rep a little uncomfortable, since that's her first vote, right? That's right. Uh, but, you know, it's it's here we go again. Uh, the United States is, is siding in an international forum with Israel uh, with the intention of uh, isolating Hamas and the Palestinians. And what it's accomplishing is just the opposite. It's isolating the United States of America and the international community, something that Biden can't really afford to do, particularly in the wake of the, of the Trump years. Um, maybe there will be a pivot. Uh, maybe we'll take a, a little tougher line, but we have yet to see that. And if we, if we were to see that, I think that Biden would enjoy much more support among the American public and his own party than he realizes. People are ready for this. People are ready to pivot away from Israel. And, and it's overdue. We saw it kind of tentative moves in that direction under 
under Obama, I think Biden needs to continue to continue that practice of separating the United States from these egregious actions that Israel is conducting in Gaza. Well, the columnist for the New York Times, Tom Friedman, is, has, <laughs> has said bluntly, <laughs> and yeah. he's ne never been that critical of Israel, that this is all about Netanyahu trying to stay in power as long as he can to avoid going to jail. Well, no, um, no Israeli leader has ever lost votes by killing Palestinians, sadly. Mm. And Netanyahu has taken a leaf from the book of his predecessors who served in the prime ministership uh, and is uh, reinforcing his strength among the settler movement, the right wing in Israel. He's invited right wingers um, uh, into the Knesset, uh, racists. Uh, and it, that's to his benefit. He would love, he's been prime minister for 12 years. He'd love to continue uh, that tenure. And uh, bombing Palestinians in Gaza apparently is the way that he thinks he can do that. And again, I'm speaking with Mark Perry, who's an author and historian specializing in military, foreign affairs, and intelligence analysis, a senior analyst at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's the author of 10 books on foreign policy and military history, including Conceived in Liberty, A Fire in Zion, and Talking to Terrorists, Why America Must Engage with Its Enemies. And he's a recipient of the National Jewish Book Award and the prestigious Project Censored Award. And you have traveled to Israel and the Palestinian territories dozens of times, Mark. This is, of course, a sad situation. And the idea that, that anybody would have any sympathy for Hamas is pretty extraordinary since it's a religious fanatical organization. The very name Hamas means zeal. But it seems that the Palestinian people are caught between this hideous party of religious fanatics who are lobbing these rockets at Israel indiscriminately. They're not guided in any way. Uh, and you've got this completely useless, corrupt Palestinian authority in the West Bank. And is there ever going to be... I mean, let's analyze for a minute why it is that decent leadership has never emerged. I spoke yesterday with a Palestinian who said that's been Israel's tactic to make sure that no decent leaders emerged, just these corrupt PA people and these fanatical Hamas people. Well, it is, it's a sad period of time for the Palestinian people, but I, I will say that um, there is a characteristic of this current uh, period of time that is different than what we've seen before. There is now inside of Israel itself a kind of uprising among Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, against the Israeli government. They're tired of being second-class citizens, of being lawfully characterized and categorized as second-class citizens. The troubles on the streets of Israel have been very surprising. And um, it's, it's almost as if, well, I think, I think it is true that the Palestinian people, for the first time, in this particular instance, are acting together. Um, Hamas and the leadership in the West Bank and the leaderless but very powerful group of Israeli Arabs inside of Israel itself seem to be acting in concert. So we're seeing the full panoply of a, of a conflict here that we haven't seen really since 1948. We had the first intifada, the second intifada. We've had exchanges of gunfire between Israel and Hamas for years and years now. 
but but the uprisings in the cities and towns of Israel among Arab Israelis is really startling, and I think it's a, I think it's worrisome to the Netanyahu government. They redeployed border police from the West Bank, where they were assisting the occupation into Israel itself. These are thugs. This is very akin to what the Trump administration did when it called. Uh, you know, Texas prison guards into the streets of Washington, D.C. So this is new, and it's uh, it's profound. And I think that uh, regardless of what happens with the rocket fire between Israel and Hamas, we're going to see a continuation of these kinds of troubles inside of Israel, and it's, it's going to force the Israeli government, I think it will force the Israeli government to pivot away from the kinds of policies that they've been following now for 70 years towards a search for something new, an end to a conflict that is that will continue for another 70 years unless they do something to change it. Well, if you go back to the 67 war, and, and I, I've spoken with the late Prime Minister Rabin, Yitzhak Rabin, about this some time ago, of course, and the Israelis did not want to go to war with Jordan. They did everything in the world to try and stop the conflict with Jordan because Jordan, of course, controlled East Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa. But, of course, the Jordanian king was under enormous pressure from Syria and from Egypt and had no choice. He would have been overthrown. So when the Israelis occupied East Jerusalem and defeated the, the Arab armies in the 67 war, they surely had a choice. You either treat these captive Palestinians as subjects but not citizens or you bring them along and provide education and services. And I don't understand why they made the former decision because now you've got an apartheid situation. Well, I think that's exactly right. It's a good analysis of history. They had a choice in 67. I think it was a no-brainer for them to... Uh, to do the right thing, to kind of embrace people who might have been constituents in that subject, but they didn't make that choice. Um, and so here we are in the current situation. You remember your, you uh, you bring up your discussions with Yitzhak Rabin. I had similar discussions with him, and I made the mistake once of, of describing him as an Israeli leader who chose peace, and he criticized me. He said, I haven't chosen peace. I've chosen Israel. This is the only way that Israel is going to survive is if we make peace with the Palestinians. That's still true. Um, This, you know, we've been diverted over the last years, the Syrian civil war, the problems in Yemen, uh, the problems in Afghanistan, the continuing problems in Iraq. And yet here we are again. What is it? May of 2021. And we're back focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's just a conflict that won't go away, and it's not going to go away. It keeps reminding us of the fundamental injustices visited on the Palestinian people by the Israelis for many, many, many years. And the Israeli political establishment would do well to to address that in a meaningful way, which they haven't done for many years. Well, Mark Perry, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Mark Perry. He's an author and historian specializing in military, foreign affairs, and intelligence analysis, a senior analyst at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's the author of 10 books on foreign policy and military history, including Conceived in Liberty, A Fire in Zion, and Talking to Terrorists, Why America Must Engage with Its Enemies. And he's the recipient of the National Jewish Book Award and the prestigious Project Censored Award. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the role of millennials in politics with the author of a new book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. As part of WMNF's mission calendar, we're paying special attention to mental health awareness in May. We know many listeners or their loved ones are struggling. If you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. The number is 211. That's 211. WMNF is here for you, too. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charlotte Alter, who's a national correspondent for Time magazine, who covered the 2016, 2018, and 2020 campaigns, youth social movements, and women in politics. And she's the author of The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America, a book out this week in paperback. And her latest article at Time magazine is The Handmaidens of Trump how Elise Stefanik went from moderate to MAGA. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charlotte Alter. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, your book profiles millennials like Pete Buttigieg, Elise Stefanik, Max Rose, and, of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You mm-hmm. don't talk about the others, particularly in the altercations now going on in the halls of Congress. Matt Gates, of course, he's got his legal problems, and and Marjorie Taylor Greene screaming at AOC. But Elise Stefanik is, of course, very much in the news, having replaced Liz Cheney. Is that a Pyrrhic victory, though? I mean, her ambition is so flagrant. And one of the people that you mentioned who's known her for some time is quoted in your article saying that she basically abandoned her own core values for a man who has no core values. So how do you see her in maybe, you know, four or five years from now? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that is important to understand about somebody like Elise Stefanik is she's highly intelligent, highly ambitious, and also she's a Republican in New York State. So uh, moving up the ranks in this way through House leadership, it was really, you know, one of the only paths to advancement available to her because it was just, it's just so difficult for a Republican to win a Senate race or a governor's race in New York. Um, so, you know, I don't think it, it, it really is a Pyrrhic victory for her. I think it is a real victory for her. I mean, she is now... 
she's 36 years old and she's one of the most powerful Republican women in the country, if not the most powerful, you know, high ranking Republican woman in the country. Um, so she's I, I think that her bet has paid off. Um, what's hard about it is that, you know, she's somebody who when I was first reporting my book, um, Nearly everybody I spoke to about her, from her, you know, friends and former classmates and teachers to even to people who worked with her, to even people who were her political opponents who ran against her and, you know, disagree with her on most issues. They told me that they felt, you know, that she was a really, really smart person and also that they felt she was somebody who had integrity. They respected her character. Um, And that's, I think what she's really sacrificed here because many of those same people who uh you know back when she was somebody who was uh keeping trump at arm at arm's length um you know they felt like she was really an honest broker and somebody who could uh represent the future of the republican party now almost all of those people think that she has sold her soul well power without principles seems to be the currency of the moment and i guess what we're talking about here in terms of politics is it's it's a business right it's a career choice you know if you move up the ladder you suck up to the boss is that what's going on here i mean i i was suggesting maybe that at the end of the day losing your what moral standing you had may end up being more costly than being in charge of a party that takes over the house by cheating rather than competing, which is what's in the cards with the Republicans in 2022. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it really, you know, it, I think it really depends. I think one of the things that is, um, you know, challenging, particularly when you're talking about younger politicians and younger members of Congress, is that this is their career, you know, for them to sacrifice their political career for their principles means that they're out of a job, you know, Um, and for some of the people, you know, there are other members of Congress who, and other just, you know, elected officials who maybe uh, joined the public sector, um, you know, after they had already had a career in business or after they had already, you know, worked in education or in science or had another career in a different field, and then they transitioned to politics. And many of those people, are able to go back to whatever they were doing before. Um, but, but Elise Stefanik ran for office when she was in her late 20s. She was the um, youngest woman elect, ever elected to Congress at the time that she won in 2014. And then, obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has since broken her record. Um, but, you know, this is her career. There is no other place for her to go. Well, I suppose in a way, though, Charlotte Alder, what we should be looking at here is her district and what happened to it, because she, we've talked about her transition from being, being described as the Democrats' favorite Republican early on and belonging to the Tuesday Club and being a moderate Republican to being all-in MAGA. But the district that she represents voted twice for Obama and is now all-in MAGA as well. So it's something bigger is happening than just the individual, surely. Absolutely. I mean, she, you know, her district is a really important part of this story. As you said, this was a district that voted twice for 
Trump, for Obama and then swung heavily towards Trump. And the people in her district are the white, rural, working-class voters who make up the majority of Trump's base. Um, so, you know, she is somebody who, you know, everyone who knows her, allies and detractors alike, um, agree that one of her real strengths is that she's deeply in touch with her district. Um she is somebody who, uh, you know, it really has a finger on the pulse of what's happening there. She's always fighting for, you know, the, the industries in her districts that include the military, farming, things like that. Um, and so in some ways, the uh, transformation of the Republican Party is, all, is really about the transformation of the Republican base. And I think what you see, particularly with you know, the members who voted to uh, overturn the results of the Electoral College is that uh, you're kind of seeing these conspiracy theories almost get laundered upwards, you know. So when you have thousands or even millions of people in the Republican base who believe that the election was stolen, who believe Trump's big lie about a rigged election that was that was stolen from him. And all of those people are really mad and they're calling their member of Congress saying you've got to do something about it. That's how you get members of Congress, you know, excusing their vote to, uh, you know, not certify the Electoral College results by saying they have, quote, concerns about, quote, irregularities. So, you know, it's it's just a it's a different way of embracing the big lie, but they're none they are nonetheless embracing that big lie. And you know, I think one of the the really telling things that happened, you know, on the on the day of that vote, Ted Cruz said that the reason he voted to you know ob- object to the electoral college results is that he is that this was a reality for millions of americans it's not a reality you know actually but for four millions of people in the republican base this is their reality and so uh you know increasingly elected officials in the republican party are forced to accommodate the reality of their base well i must say it's a rather sort of soviet stalinist situation isn't it where you get purged if you tell the truth and you have to step in line behind the lie yeah yeah i mean certainly some people are seeing it that way Hmm. and again i'm speaking with charlotte alder who's a national correspondent for time magazine who covered the 2016 the 2018 and the 2020 campaigns and youth social movements and women in politics and she's the author of the ones we've been waiting for how a new generation of leaders will transform america a book out this week in paperback and the latest article at time is the handmaiden of trump how elise stefanik went from moderate to maga so let's talk a little bit about the other young millennial politicians that you profile um and of course pete Buttigieg is in the government and as secretary of transportation he actually had a date didn't he with elise stefanik when they're at harvard well that that was the rumor um you know both of them both of them say that it was just a friendly coffee uh but the rumor on campus is that you know when they were at harvard together they went on a single uneventful date um, you know, it, it seems like it was one of those things where they got together and, you know, they, maybe they, you know, it sort of came off like it was a date, but by the end it was like they were just friends. So, 
certainly not an intense romantic relationship. <laughs> well, that would be surprising, given yes. <laughs> who, uh, Pete Buttigieg is now, because married to a man. And, um, you know, every time I see him, he just takes my breath away because he's so smart and so articulate. And in the sense that your book is suggesting that we should have some optimism about the future and that the millennial generation that are inheriting this screwed up mess that we baby boomers have handed them may be able to get their hands around it and do surprisingly well. If he is your poster boy, I'd say we're in good shape. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I found in, in reporting this book is that uh, in, in some ways, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Pete Buttigieg, and Elise Stefanik um, are kind of a good spread of where the millennial generation is right now. I mean, this generation and Gen Z behind them lean overwhelmingly to the left. So this is not a generation that is divided 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. It's more like... 65 towards Democrats, 35 towards Republicans. So, you know, that significant minority of conservative millennials, um, they probably do embrace somebody like Elise Stefanik or Dan Crenshaw, who is um, another of the characters in my book. But most millennials are voting for Democrats. And we saw that with the record turnout in the 2020 election, uh, in which Young voters turned out at a number that even exceeded, by some count, the 2008 youth turnout and, uh, you know, put Joe Biden over the top in key states like Georgia, Arizona and Michigan. Um, but and, and so those young Democrats kind of kind of are on a spectrum almost between somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who really represents the progressive wing of the millennial generation, you know, the, the, the millennials who uh, embrace the idea of socialism, the millennials who, uh, you know, maybe voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary, um, the, the young people who really feel like the system is fundamentally broken and needs to be, uh, needs to be destroyed and then rebuilt versus the uh, millennials who are maybe a little bit more on the Barack Obama end of the spectrum. And those people would be like the, the people who kind of gravitate towards somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who stands for a slightly more technocratic approach of fixing the system from within rather than dismantling and starting something new. So the millennials, of course, grew up with events that shaped them like 9-11, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Obama's election, the Great Recession, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the endless numbers of school shootings and the Black Lives Matter movement. And, of course, they're all saddled with a lifetime of debt, student debt. So what happened there, in a way? Did they go through a, a kind of trial, if you will, with Trump? Because you should point out it's a much more progressive and liberal generation and they're very tolerant of gender issues and they're over most of the stuff that old, the older generation still are fixated on. Trump had to be a nightmare for them. So are they coming out of the nightmare? Yeah, I mean, well, this, this is a generation who uh, disapproved of Trump by roughly like 70 to 75 percent, if you, you know, d d d depending on the metric you're looking at. So uh, young people, even a lot of young people who, you know, maybe lean slightly conservative, were not 
uh, with Trump for most of his presidency. Um, but yeah, so one of the things that I, uh, that I analyze in my book is this idea um, that, it, you know, it's actually a myth, a very common held misconception that uh, young people are always liberal and old people are always conservative and that uh, people get more conservative as they age. Um, actually, the science shows that people might get slightly more conservative on things like, you know, school funding or property taxes, you know, as they buy homes and have families and start sending their kids to school. But their core political values and their basic political attitudes are formed in response to the historical events of their young adulthood. Um, things that happened between roughly the ages of 16 and 26, give or take a couple years. Um, and so what this book does is it looks at what those events were for people born between 1980 and 1997, which is the millennial generation. And, you know, you've listed many of them that are in my book, um, but Trump was in many ways kind of that final breaking point for this generation. And most of the young people who, uh, you know, are now, most of the millennials who are now, uh, you know, real young leaders of this generation and people who have, you know, gotten elected to office in the last four or five years who are breaking new ground, who are charting a new path forward. Most of those people got their political, you know, got involved in politics partly because of Donald Trump, partly because Trump's election really represented this failure of the adult establishment, this failure of the baby boomer model. Um, you know, the, the fact that all of the people who were supposed to know better uh, said that somebody like Trump could not get elected, said that this was a country that would not elect a president like him, and yet he became president anyway. So, so much of this of this rising generation has been shaped by the events that I describe in my book from 9-11 to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to financial crisis to Black Lives Matter, but they were mobilized by Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has not gone away. And so do you have this kind of bifurcation in terms of the people that you profiled in your book, Charlotte, the idea that most of them are with Obama and trying to undo the damage that Trump did. And you've got Stefanik all in with him. I'm not sure what trajectory she's on because we don't know exactly. As I say, there's a good chance the Republicans could come back in 2022 because of voter suppression, gerrymandering, and the fact that they're so brazen about seeing their future as one in which they would rather cheat than compete. Yeah, I mean, well, as, as I said, this is not... You know, this, this 